good morning. It is so warming to just be uh, here with you guys, and I just hope that you will rise and sing to our God, because I know it is warming to his heart that we are here to praise him. So let's uh, stand and sing for him. Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high, oh. 
Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you, with all, fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful that we can come together this morning for this time of worship. And Father, we place all of our hope in you. Father, we know that we can trust you and that what you say is true. Lord, I pray this morning that our hearts are, that our hearts are centered on you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. good morning. Good to see everybody today. We're here to worship the Lord together and glad that you've chosen to come together to do that with us today. Please make sure you fill out your connection card for us. And for those of you who are watching online, we ask that you do the same so that we can keep in contact with you. Now, what I'd like to do for the next three minutes, soon as I click the timer over, I'd like you to go around and just say hi to somebody. Don't just hang out with your best buddy, but go talk to people. Say hi to somebody you haven't talked to for a while. And just let's make everybody feel welcome here this morning as we worship at First Christian.
too. Two. All right. It is it is awesome that everybody's like um fellowshipping with each other. Um but you know before we start the next set, could you join me in wishing our pastor our happy birthday? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Ready? Happy birthday to you. Cha cha cha. Happy birthday to you. Cha cha cha. Happy birthday, dear Jeff. Happy birthday to you. Cha cha cha. I'm gonna have to get 24, my 24. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to get my not walker. Not till tomorrow. Oh, 24 yeah, tomorrow. not till tomorrow. But we're not counting anymore anyway. Do y'all have my walker so I can make it up the steps? <laughs> yeah. Ready? Ooh, ooh, I can see the clouds rolling. I can feel the winds they try to shake me. I will not be moved. My feet are on the rock. Oh, oh. I can feel the waters rise. I can hear the howling lies that haunt me. Fear won't hold me now. My feet are on the rock. Ooh. When I feel my
John 14, 6 says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through every battle, through every heartbreak, through every circumstance, I believe that you are my fortress. Oh, you are my portion, and you are my hiding place. Oh, I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe through every
1 Corinthians 15.55 tells us, where death is your victory, where death is your sting, because he is our way forever. Sting, our resurrected 
you. Well, the last couple of weeks, we've covered what First Thessalonians talks to us about concerning the issue of the second coming of Christ. I'm glad Paul gave us this information because we can know how things will go when Jesus returns. And there's a lot of information out there about that subject. There's been a lot of books written. There's been a lot of bad theology pre, uh, taught about this. But when you look at the scripture, we know how it's going to go down. And anything that says differently is crossways with scripture. But remember how the um, remember how the events of the second coming was playing out to Paul's readers there was a deep concern within the church at the time because what was happening is that people were dying before Jesus returned and during that time kind of unlike now I, I, I really don't think people expect Jesus to return anytime soon they expected it so much that many of them were quitting their jobs basically living up on the mountaintop waiting for the Lord to return in a few weeks we'll talk we'll talk about where Paul says, hey, if you're not going to work, you're not going to eat, because a lot of people were basically mooching off the church because they were just waiting for Jesus to come back. But they, there was an expectation. Now, the overarching concern about this expectation was the fact that what would happen to those who died before the second coming? And, of course, Paul offered what he wrote to ease the tension that the folks were feeling over this subject matter because they didn't really know what was going to happen, and he, he set them straight. He said, here's how it's going to go down. And he said, I want you to take what I've taught you and encourage each other with these words. Well, one of the things that happens even today, and it was happening then too, is people are so fixated on the logistics of the second coming that sometimes if we're not careful, we can get all excited about the Left Behind series and all that stuff that's a good, good fantasy, but we can get all excited about that stuff and we can just say, hey, I want to have studies in Revelation. I want to have studies in Daniel. A lot of people don't realize when you study Revelation, you need to study a lot of the Old Testament too. But they're like, we want to do all this and we want to do all this. But the problem is, if we're not careful, we can forget what's really important. The most important thing. Paul shared what he shared for information purposes, for encouragement purposes. And he says, okay, now that you know this, it's time to move on. Let's not fixate on this. You know how it's going to go down. You know your loved ones are coming back with Jesus when he comes. No more worries. Be happy. But here's the thing. What is most important? The most important thing is, what are you going to do as you're waiting for him to come back? Or, what are you going to do before you die? Some people have been so fixated on, on things like the, on the, the logistics of the end times. And sometimes we get so fixated and want to know, what, is, what specifically is God's will for my life? You know, I want to know everything about God's will for my life, which is a good thing. But what we do with the life we have is what's important. The folks that were waiting on the mountaintop, Paul says, you're wasting your life. You're not doing what God called you to do. And 
the thing is, we've seen people, and Jerry pointed this out last week, throughout history, people have tried to say, hey, here's when he's going to return. Here's when he's coming back. And all of them look like fools, eventually. I like the chicken thing. That was kind of interesting. Um, but the thing is, Jesus himself doesn't know when he's returning. He told us in Matthew 24, 36 that only the Father knows. But one thing that we can know, without a doubt, is God's overarching will for our life. And when I mentioned about knowing specifics, sometimes we get so fixated on specific things. Where am I supposed to work? What am I supposed to do here? What am I, that we forget the overarching will, and that is how God wants me to live my life. I'm not saying the other things aren't important, but if I'm not lining my life up with him, the other stuff honestly doesn't matter. And if I'm not lining my life up with him, it doesn't matter how the second coming would happen because I would miss out. If I'm one of those that subscribe to the left behind thing, which basically second chance theology, the thing is, is okay, I'm going to wait till I see all these people go up and then it's okay, now I believe, now I'm going to change my life. Well, if it's not happening that way, you've lost. You're left behind <laughs> for, forever. Or if you're thinking, you know, I'm going to wait till I see Jesus return and then I might do it. Well, what if you die before that happens? You've lost. It's over. So what we do with this life is so important. The Pharisees lost sight of this. You know, here are these guys who were so religious and holy, and they were so worried when they took Jesus to the trials that they wouldn't even go into Pilate's house because they didn't want to be defiled so they couldn't partake in the Passover. But yet here they were trying to kill an innocent man. Do you not see a problem with that? We don't want to be guilty of that in any, in any way. We can know God's will. It's laid out clearly. The way of the second coming is of little consequence if we're not ready for our, either our, our passing or his return. Paul understood this concept. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he shared with us what God's will is for us to be doing as we anticipate his return. And by the way, we should be anticipating it. It may not happen during our lifetime, but yet we should be living expecting it to happen because we always want to be ready. It would be like a police officer in the big city where there's a lot of violence, particularly in certain cities, and they decide, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to work without my gun, without my, without my vest and stuff, and, and then all of a sudden the gunfire starts and they're not prepared. What's going to happen? They're going to go down. You don't want that to happen to you. You want to be ready all the time. The big idea to the message is simple this morning. We may not know the time or the day of Jesus' return, but we can always know God's will is for us to live a godly life of faithful obedience. Now, the question is, what does that look like? Well, Paul's going to share some of that with us today in our passage. So we're going to begin by being in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 15. It says this. Paul says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who labor among you and preside over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the un undisciplined, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient toward all. See that no one repays back evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. So the first piece of advice, the first counsel from God that we see from Paul is living for God while living with others in your life. The Pharisees thought they were living for God, okay? 
But really, when you break it down, it, it really, I'm not their judge, but I mean, just from looking at it, it doesn't appear that they knew how the fact that they were living with God would impact how they live with others. See, if you claim to be living for Jesus, the way you treat others makes a difference. Paul reveals God's will for us concerning how to live with others. And the main focus of his teaching in context, it isn't until the end of the verse that he talks about people outside of Christ, but he's talking about how brothers and sisters in Christ are to live with one another. Your church family, the kingdom of God, if you will. And so when Paul begins this, it's interesting to me that he starts out by, by basically encouraging the people, oh, by the way, when you're living for God and you're waiting for the Lord to return, here's how you're to treat your leaders. And he starts right off with that. The first thing he says in verse 12 is you're to acknowledge them. Now, the thing about this section is not only is it talk about how our, our, how our response and how our way of dealing with leaders in the church are supposed to be, but it also gives you their responsibilities. For instance, they're called to labor hard on the behalf of the flock. No one should be an elder. No one should be in you know, pre preaching ministry if they're just wanting a position. See, you're called in those positions to labor hard for the flock. Church leaders are also called to preside over the flock and admonish the flock when needed. Now, the word preside denotes one who has authority to care for others by doing good works. And I have seen people in, in eldership, not here, thankfully, but I've been around them in other places where they didn't understand that they thought presiding meant ruling over. And what presiding means is it means that you care for others by serving them. See, good leaders are servant leaders, really, whether it's in the church or whether it's in government or whether it's in, whether it's in business. A good leader is there also to serve others because it builds the greater good. Well, they're also told to admonish, and admonish means to give instruction. Church leaders are called to labor hard, to lead, and to instruct. That's what, that's what we see in this passage among others. Now, the problem is doing these things can be very upsetting to people because some folks have the attitude that I'm not going to do what anybody tells me to do or I'm not going to submit myself to the authority of the church leaders. Well, honestly, and I don't mean this in a bad way, if you feel that way, why are you in a, whatever church you're in, why are you in that church? If you can't respect the leadership enough to submit to them, why are you there? Because Jesus tells us through the Apostle Paul, God tells us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that one of the things that I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to acknowledge those leaders and I'm supposed to esteem those leaders, as we'll see in a moment. Doing the work of a leader is not easy. It's easy if everything and everyone was perfect, but everything isn't, nobody is. I find it interesting that Paul starts this letter by telling the people, one of the things you're supposed to do by the will of God is you're supposed to acknowledge, appreciate your leaders. Now, why did he do this? Well, first of all, the leader's job's tough. It can be a very thankless job at times. This is why one of the reasons for somebody to be an elder in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that one of the first qualifications is that they desire to do the work. Now, it doesn't mean that they desire to lord it over people, that they desire to be the, the big cheese, that they desire to serve the congregation and to labor hard among them on their behalf. It's easy for people to take shots at leaders, whether they're in church, government, business, because when you're out front, you're going to get shot at. It's going to happen. But here's the problem. Often people want to lead from the back seat. 
they don't want the responsibility that comes with leadership but they want to drive the, they want to drive the they want to drive the organization they will sit back and take pot shots at leaders because in truth they want it their way and they don't respect the way that things are going and so what they do is they just become critical of church leaders or business the same way whatever you can pick whatever your place where you have leaders it happens the same way Paul says it's our responsibility to our church leaders to acknowledge them and that word doesn't mean just say okay you're the leader but it, the connotation here is that believers must know their shepherds deeply respect and value their service such acknowledgement or such knowledge is more than just a personal awareness of who they are there's a few words for know in the Greek. There's a couple of them. This one means to know by experience. And so this implies a, a two-way relationship. It's incumbent upon the elders to do what they can to have a relationship with, with everybody in the congregation, but it's also incumbent on the congregation to reciprocate. And this, this entails a close acquaintance that results in a caring appreciation for each other. You can't, be, you can't hate somebody you care about. You might not like what they do at times, but ultimately, you're not going to hate them. You're not going to badmouth them. Um, we're to have a track record with the leaders so we can appreciate them. Verse 13 says we're to esteem them most highly for their work. The word esteem ties closely to, closely to appreciate. It means to have a personal attachment, a respect of the position, and a deep appreciation for what they do. We are basically told to hold them in high regard, in the highest regard. Apparently, though, what was happening in Thessalonica is that wasn't happening, or else why would Paul address it? There were people that weren't doing what the church leadership was trying to get them to do. They wouldn't listen to the admonishment, the instruction that the leaders were trying to give them. And Paul says, while you're waiting for me to, for my son to return, or waiting for Jesus to return, this is what you need to do. See, we need wise leadership, too, today, but we also need wise followers. An army of captains and colonels never won a battle. We, there, you've got to have the troops too the work of elders and of church leaders is not easy the position comes with a great responsibility a lot of people don't understand this look at this from, from Hebrews and he's talking about your church leaders here obey your leaders, submit to them for they will keep watch over your souls and give an account for their work let them do this with joy and not with complaints for this would, no, be, this would be for this would be no advantage for you and so in a nutshell what he's saying he says listen those church leaders, they're going to stand before God and give an account for the work that they've done or for what they didn't do. They're going to be accountable. Do you want that weight on your shoulders? A lot of people don't. It's a very difficult job. And then it says, oh, by the way, don't make it hard for them. In other words, where he says, let them do this with joy and not with complaints. In other words, don't be the one that's like, oh, gosh, i got to deal with this person again. <laughs> you know, i got to deal with that. i got to deal with this. Um, because it says this is no advantage of you. So in other words, causing church leaders problems isn't an advantage to you. It's not a good thing. So that's something to think about. Verse 13 then says, he shifts focus a bit, and he says, be at peace among yourselves. Now this significant change pertains to being at peace with our leaders and our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called to do that. When you look at verses 14 and 15, which we'll do, it's easy to see why we're called to be at peace with one another. Because the charges in verses 14 and 15 aren't just for church leaders, but it, it pertains to all of us. And we can, so to be able to do these things, we have to have the correct heart, 
and the correct attitude to pull it off. First, we're told to admonish or instruct the undisciplined. Some versions use unruly. The word undisciplined in the Greek usage was, occurred in, was used in a military context, and it referred to a soldier who was out of rank and behaved disorderly or in an insubordinate manner. Or it came to refer to anyone who did not perform his duty or follow through on their responsibility. And then the undisciplined then were those who were out of step with everybody else in the direction that they're going. Being undisciplined didn't mean they were necessarily out there perpetrating evil. We can be undisciplined if we fail to use our gifts, material, spiritual, and other areas of giftedness for the better of God's kingdom and for the growth of his kingdom and for the health of his church. So in other words, if I've been given some gifts and I'm not going to share them with God, but I'm going to make a living off of them, which you know God gave them to you to make a living, then I'm being basically undisciplined because I've got a tremendous gift that I'm willing to make millions of dollars with, but I'm not willing to use in God's kingdom. And so that would require an admonishment. The second group of people, he says, that we, de- that we have to deal with is we're called to comfort the discouraged. The word um, comfort means to speak alongside. A person who is discouraged, they're in grief, they're in pain, it's very discouraging for them. And we're called to come alongside them and help encourage them and let them know, hey, we know it's tough, but we're here to walk the path with you. We're here to speak those words of encouragement to you. You don't think you can do it, but you can, and we're here to help you get through it. The third group of people, he says, that we're to help are the weak. The word weak means fragile, and these brethren have a weak faith that's beleaguered by doubts. Their faith may not be strong enough to enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ. There are certain, they are certainly more susceptible to error, to temptation, and to sin than the stronger brother or sister in Christ is. Weaker believers, some of them are so sensitive, they have, their consciences are so sensitive because of their past sins, that many times they'll perceive things that are sin that really aren't sin. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 8, and, and verse, chapter 8, and verse 7, and some other passages, where Paul's talking about Christians eating meat that was sacrificed to idols in the temple. Basically, he said, eh, that's all fake, eat what you want. But there, he said, but if you've got a brother or sister who thinks that that's wrong, don't do it in front of them. And then, of course, the implication is help them to grow to realize it's okay. We are called to help them to become strong. To help means to hold on to and to cling to. We don't just let a weak brother lie there in the road and get run over. We go pick them up and try to help them. Then to top it off, he says, <laughs> we're called to be patient with all. I don't, that shouldn't be there. But be patient with all. Patience means the restraint of anger. Now, believe it or not, there's probably some folks in your life that get under your skin. Or we have brothers and sisters in Christ for, for whatever reason will make us lose our patience with them. Because it can be tough dealing with those who are undisciplined, who are discouraged, and they're weak. Sometimes you just want to say, you know, you're trying to help people, and sometimes you just want to say, you know what, I can't do anything, throw my hands up, walk away. Or get mad at them, say, I don't understand why you don't get this, what's your problem? And we can lose patience with them. Helping folks, is it's tempting just to quit doing it. And so what we're called to do is we're called to be patient. I'm thankful. I'll never forget when I started dating my wife, I started going to Sunday school with her, and Charlie Bartison was teaching. Charlie just passed away recently. And I had no filter then at all. I felt so bad for her. We were talking about, I know we were talking about the lottery. Now, I'm not saying you play the lottery, it's evil, okay? I, but at that time, I'm like, we we're talking, and they were kind of teaching it like it was a really bad thing to be doing. And by the way, you shouldn't waste your money, but anyway, it's your business. But 
And I'm like, oh, I play the lottery, and I buy a ticket every once in a while. And I'm just, I can't believe she didn't just sit there and go, oh, my gosh. But every time I'd say something really stupid, which was very often, Charlie just never, never called me stupid, never. He was very patient with me and just so kind and gentle in how he dealt with me. And I always appreciated that because he really could have run me down. He could have run me out of place. Verse 15 also tells us this, and this is so important. What do you want to do when somebody perpetrates evil against you? What do you want to do? Want to get even? Want to, as I used to say, I want to get ahead? Well, unfortunately, Scripture tells us never, never return evil for evil. Now think about this. He says, instead, we're called to pursue good, what is good for one another. One another's brothers and sisters in Christ. And then, just for completeness, he says, and for all those outside of Christ. Now, imagine somebody does something evil to you, and you strike out and hit, hit evil right back with them. What have you gained? What have you gained? What if, what if, for whatever reason, you just don't like somebody, and you're out in public bad-mouthing them? And other people who aren't Christians hear that. And then you decide you want to talk to them about Jesus. They think they're going to take you seriously? Or that person that perpetrated evil against you and you shot it right back at them and they're not Christians. And then somebody wants to talk to them about Jesus and they say, yeah, I know what that Christian did to me. They forget what they did to you, but they know what you did to them. You see, returning to evil for evil doesn't do any good. So one of the things that we're told when we're waiting for the Lord to return is we don't return evil for evil. That's hard to do at times. We are called to do what's best for them. As a matter of fact, we are called to be diligent and seek after what is best. We're to be actively pursuing what is best for others. That's hard sometimes, especially when somebody's been mean to you. It's very, very hard. Always means that we're to seek out good for others as a matter of habit. I hate it when the scripture uses words like always, everything, all the time, because it doesn't leave any wiggle room, unfortunately. Let's look at verses 16 through 22. Always rejoice, constantly pray, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not extinguish the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but examine all things, hold fast to what is good, stay away from evil, every form of evil. So the second thing that he gives us here is living for God with God in your life. In verses 16 through 22, it's filled with attitudes and actions we're called to do as we live our lives in Christ. If you're in Christ and you're living, this is, how you're, this is what we're supposed to be doing. If you're not, you can do what you want. But if you're in Christ, this is how we're called to live. And I hate this sometimes because the first thing he says is we're called to rejoice when... <sighs> Why does he make it so hard? Why can't he say rejoice unless something bad happens to you or somebody's mean to you or, you know, you lose something or you, the Cardinals have finishing last place for the first time in 1,900 years? I mean, I mean, seriously, you think we're the Cubs this year or something. But anyway, but they missed the playoffs too, so I'm pretty happy. But anyway, um, it says rejoice always. And, and think about this. If you're in the Thessalonican church, you know what's happening to you at this point? You're being persecuted. You're being persecuted. And crazy Paul says, rejoice always. I'd be like, you're crazy. You're crazy. Well, the thing you have to remember about them too, just living life was tough. 
I mean, if we need to go to the restroom, we got restrooms back here, we got them back here. Everything flushes, it's really nice. Uh, if you need a drink of water, we got a water fountain out here. People raid the refrigerator and take all the water we get for the office, that's fine, we buy more. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's, it's so easy, but for them just to get water was a chore. I mean, it would have been easy just to be depressed about how difficult life was in general. You know, a lot of our youngsters, well, everybody, we've got our, we got our phones here, and they didn't have those. What, would, what were kids doing when they couldn't have their face in their phone 24-7? And what were you adults doing? You know what? You're getting water. You're, you're cleaning the sewer out. I mean, it was rough. And imagine if we could bring a group of those people back from there and let them live here for a week and send them back. Then they'd really be depressed because, like, man, they got everything so easy. They got this thing called a microwave where their TV dinner only takes five minutes or whatever. <laughs> What's a TV? But anyway... Uh, In the midst of everything that was happening to them, it would have been easy to think that God had left them because of what they're facing. But Paul says, rejoice always. And by the way, the verb tense of this doesn't give us any wiggle room. It's constantly. It's a continuous action. The consequence of receiving God's salvation should be reason for rejoicing. Is it, hey, I got cancer, I'm going to die in six months? No. But the rejoicing comes is, yeah, I may have that, but I know where I'm going in six months because of who I am in Christ. Circumstances should not dictate rejoicing. Rejoicing doesn't come from outward conditions. It comes from a condition in the heart. It comes from understanding the spiritual riches we have in Christ. Remember one thing when it comes to this life. Every single one of us, unless the Lord returns, every single one of us is going to die one day. Isn't that depressing? We're all going to die at some point. As you all sing happy birthday to me, I'm starting to count years and think, golly, it's getting short. But we can rejoice because of the assurances that we have in Christ. And that's, that gives us joy. We're also called to pray. And by the way, it's so easy to focus on the negative, isn't it? I don't hardly watch the news anymore. I just, it's just, they should call it the negatives. You know, we're going to have the big shutdown and Armageddon was going to happen. Well, honestly, outside of the military getting paid, which, you know, those, those guys... And, border, yeah, and the Border Patrol people. Well, y'all aren't working very hard right now because we don't have a border problem anymore, remember? <laughs> Nobody's crossing that border. What are you talking about? Y'all on vacation. <laughs> but honestly, I got to thinking, you know, if the government is shut down, that means that they can't be ruining the country anymore. But anyway, that's just me thinking. But I, <laughs> it's kind of hard, yeah. But I, I just don't watch the stuff anymore because I felt myself just negative and negative and negative. I mean, I know what's going on, but I just like, whatever. It's like the shutdown. Just remember one thing. That's the last thing I'll say about this. D's and R's don't give a rip about the country. It's about their power and their money. When it push comes to shove, they don't fix anything because they don't want to. There's a lot of things that could be fixed in this country. They don't want to. They don't have the courage to do it, and it, it keeps them from beating on each other. So when they say, shut down, shut down, you know it's not going to happen, or if it does... In 45 days, when it runs out, we're going to go through the same dog and pony circus. They're going to put on a little show, and then they're going to sign their thing and increase the debt. So anyway, I wish I could just increase debt at home with no consequence. That'd be cool. We'd have a really, really big house. I mean, <laughs> I don't have to worry about it. I'll just write more money up. Anyway, why do they tax us if they're going to do that? Anyway, I need to get off that. We're called to pray constantly, too. Now, when you're facing difficult circumstances or corrupt leaders, um, what do you do? I'm going to give you a confession here. Sometimes what I do when I face difficult circumstances, because I'm a pillar of spirituality, I try to fix it myself. 
And then ultimately my wife say, well, have you prayed about it? And she knows the answer. That's what makes me mad. She knows I hadn't. But really, that's the first thing we need to do. If we really believe in prayer, that's the first thing we need to do. I know the excuses, well, God's busy, or this is so simple, I can handle it. Then the train wreck gets worse. We're called to pray without ceasing. Prayer is often how obstacles that stand in our way of joy are removed. Pray without ceasing. Now, don't do it like this, you know, because you can't text and drive doing this. But, but don't do it like that. You don't have to be in a posture to pray. Prayer is just communication. Be in communication with God all the time. The Christian should be constantly, constantly communicating with God. We're also called to give thanks. We're to give thanks. This stupid word, everything. Really? Do I have to give thanks for bad stuff that I get? Seriously? It says, give thanks for everything. No exceptions. Well, we don't know what's going to happen with things. So we can give thanks that God is in control. Sometimes we have to pray hard and think hard, well, what good is going to come out of this? And we may never know it. But God says to give thanks for everything. Focusing on being thankful, what it does is it keeps us from feeling sorry for ourselves and keeps us from being negative and keeps us from blaming everybody else. There's a whole line of things that come to us when we are thankful, and we, and we can do that. Giving, good, or giving thanks also keeps us grounded during good times. We're also called not to extinguish the Spirit. Paul can, can, compares the Holy Spirit to a fire that can be put out. As we live our lives awaiting the return of the Lord, we must focus on the Holy Spirit so we don't quench the Holy Spirit's influence in our lives. We can extinguish the work of the Holy Spirit by living, immoral, by living immorally, hardening our hearts, living in carelessness, or living a life contrary to God's word. Because eventually, we keep, the Spirit keeps saying, hey, don't do that, don't do that, and we can just keep throwing water on it, eventually we'll put it out. The Spirit is so important in our life. Because the Spirit helps convict us of sin in John 16, 8. It helps us in the renewal process in Titus 3, 5. It helps us free us from the bondage of sin in Romans chapter 8. It's the mark or seal that shows we belong to God, according to 2 Corinthians 1, 22. It's a, gift, it's a gift to us for God's work in 1 Corinthians 12. And we're called, and, it, and, it, and the Spirit lives within us. He lives within us, according to Romans 8, 9, and many other passages. We can quench the Spirit when we refuse to listen. And we just decide, I'm going to do my own thing. When I refuse to live up to God's knowledge in my heart, what ends up happening is eventually enough of that, my heart will become hardened, and the Spirit will say, well, okay, you've got your free will. Enjoy. We need to focus on the Spirit's leading in our lives. And to be honest with you, there's times I don't want to follow because maybe he's going to take me where I don't want to go or I'm afraid of where he's going to take me. And I've felt that many times in my life, but I found that if you just go with the Spirit, you're going to be much better off things will be much better. Verses 20 and 21 tells us to focus on God's word. It says, don't hold in contempt the prophecies. In other words, don't put yourself against God's word in the Old Testament. Um, also work hard to don't do, not to do that. He also says to examine the truth to make sure it's truth. You know, some people, they'll come to church, they'll listen to a sermon on Sunday, and they'll never pick the word up ever again, thinking, well, I got what I need on Sunday. Well, how do you know what you're getting on Sunday is what God's word is? See, this is where a lot of people, they don't know why they believe what they believe. And what happens is because of that, the cults, we've got local cults here in town that prey on people who don't know God's word. And in those cults, there's a lot of Christians, former Christians, that are in those cults that didn't know the word of God, that can't distinguish between what's right and what's wrong. And that's a very sad thing to do. To examine means to prove something genuine. And too many times we write off parts of God's word because we don't like what it says. We don't 
we don't, we don't want to agree with it, so we don't want to align with it. So therefore, it's not true. Well, we shouldn't do that. Verse 22 finally says, stay away from all forms of evil. This is how we live for God as we live for God as he's in our lives. Let's finish up with verses 22 to 24. It says this. Now may the God of peace himself make you completely holy and may your spirit and soul and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is trustworthy and he will in fact do this. So the third area is living for God while living with yourself. I'm going to keep this brief because of time, but one of the things that we have to learn is we have to learn to live with ourselves. I see so many Christians that have allowed themselves to be defined by abuse that's happened to them, which is horrible, by the way. I'm not, not making light of it. They define themselves by how people have treated them. They define themselves by their past sin. They define themselves by their own uncertainty. And so, therefore, they cannot enjoy their life in Christ because, you know what, they don't love themselves for whatever reason. Now, now the other side, you can love yourself so much, but we won't get into that. The God of peace will make you completely holy. When you are in Christ, you know how God sees you? Holy and blameless. He sees you as a saint. How do you see yourself? Does your past haunt you? Are you defining yourself by your mistakes? My question is why? You know when you're baptized into Christ? You know it tells you your sins are washed away. Do you see an exception? Any exceptions? I don't see any. Sins are washed away. So if they're washed away, why are you carrying them? Why are you letting yourself be defined by them? When people have mistreated you early in life or in life, why do you allow that to define who you are? I've known, unfortunately, many women, unfortunately, it's happened to them a lot. It happens to some guys sometimes where they've been with abusive guys. And they'll end up with another abusive guy and then another abusive guy. And they end up hating men. Well, honestly, I kind of don't blame them. But the fact of the matter is, when you do that, those past abuses, abusers are still controlling your life. They're still controlling you. You ever think of it that way? See, God has taken those things away from you. And there are a lot of bad dudes out there, but not every one of them. There are a lot of bad women out there, but not every one of them. And see, if we go through life hating the opposite sex because of what even something horrible's happened to us the whole gender didn't do that to you that scumbag that did it to you did it to you nobody else and many times we can't love ourselves because of what's happened to us let god heal you let god heal you god sees you as holy and blameless in practical terms we're not but my life in Christ is about trying to obtain the way he sees me. And what happens is as I live life, I'll never hit that standard. But there's this thing called grace that says, Jeff, I know you, you really worked, you know, you tried hard, uh, but you weren't perfect. <laughs> Duh. But I got grace that's going to make you perfect. That's why you need Christ, in part, because he can do that for you. The life that we live isn't to earn heaven. It's not to earn a paycheck. It's not to earn kudos. It is simply an appreciation for what God has done for us. It's an appreciation for a life that he sacrificed so that I can have eternal life. Ultimately, the reason I can stand before God one day is because of the blood of Christ, nothing else. In verse 24, to punctuate, it says, oh, by the way, folks, God's trustworthy. He's going to do this. 
In Christ, in God's eyes, your past sins don't define you. Learn to love yourself because God loves you. So what do we do till the Lord returns? If you don't know anything else, flip over to 1 Thessalonians 5. If you do that, you're doing well. It's an excellent place to start. Our application is this, that we can trust God to be faithful to the end as we offer our lives loyally to him. Given your life to him, you won't be disappointed. This morning, our praise team is going to offer up a song of decision. And if, you've not, if you have not had the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to come forward this morning to do that. Jesus died on the cross because he loves you. A lot of times we say, oh, he loved everybody. Yeah, he did, but he loves you. Personalize it. He died for you. And if you need to have salvation this morning, we give you that opportunity. If you're an immersed believer and would like to make First Christian your home, we'd love to have you come forward this morning. If you're struggling and need prayer, if you want to come forward this morning, we'd be glad to pray for you. But at this time, if you have a decision to make, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing our song of decision.
time Kelly comes forward she's wanted to be baptized into Christ yes. and this at this time I'm asked Kelly do you believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God yes. and based on her confession of faith I'm gonna take her back and baptize her into Christ so before we start this one I want to remind you that we're not up here to entertain you this is all part of worship we're trying to lead you in worship, so please sing with us as we sing this to our Lord. Broken. 
Thank you. Baptism. In the second chapter of Acts, we're told the story of the Pentecost. I'm sure you remember the Pentecost. It was kind of a crazy time in Jerusalem. I mean, all these people started speaking in languages, and they heard them in their own language. It was an amazing event. And in the second chapter, Peter comes forth and starts to explain things to the crowd. And after the crowd has heard this, Peter says this. This is in second chapter of Acts, uh, verse 37. And now when they heard this, they were acutely distressed, and they said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, what should we do, brothers? Peter said to them, repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this perverse generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and on that day about 3,000 people were added. Can you imagine that? 3,000 people. This 
baptism we're going to be part of is just one. Multiply that by 3,000. God has a wonderful plan for us as a church. It's such a wonderful time to experience not only the baptism, but just celebrate in it. Let's celebrate in this baptism. Somebody has to do this <laughs> with the microphone on again. Thank you. Thank you. As we come before the table of the Lord, you noticed on the front of this table in front, there's a word. What's that word? Remember. You know, remember is one of the most common themes in the Bible. And it's not surprising because we forget. So often we forget. When we come before the table of the Lord, we take these elements, the juice, the bread. We remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave. His life, his blood, all for us. One of the things I like to do in communion sometimes is to take that little wafer, and before I eat it, I break it in half because that helps me to remember that that was his body that was broken for me. And then I'll pause and take the cup and drink and remember that that was his blood that was shed for me. It's good to remember. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of communion, the gift of your son, that we can celebrate a baptism and a new member of the body of Christ. It's exciting, Lord. But let us remember where it all started, at the cross. Keep us ever mindful of your sacrifice. Keep us ever mindful that you died for our sins. And because of that, we have everlasting life with you. And not only can we celebrate today in baptism, but we will celebrate with you when you return, when you bring down the new heaven and the new earth, and we will be in that mass, that massive party with you, and it will never, never end. Again, thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.
inside of your bulletin we have our announcements um our jerry's has all of his youth activities today rogers groups meeting um uh, all the bible studies you're meeting on wednesday we have the, we have a few things going on on sunday we have a pancake breakfast at seven so you can come to the pancake breakfast breakfast at seven and then at 8 a.m you can help with the work cleanup because we're going to be doing some uh, brush cleanup and so the more people we have here the better okay You don't want Chip to suffer all day, so. Um, and also, for those on the medical team, you've got a meeting at 9 o'clock. We've got a pretty full Saturday coming up. Also, we have our nomination committee of Al Brandon, the elder. Uh, Alan Goodman's our, our deacon, and uh, Crystal does all the logistical stuff. If you would like to nominate somebody for the position of elder or deacon, there's forms in the, in the uh, foyer at the mail system. You can grab one. Make sure you fill out the form as, it, as it's written. In other words, follow the instructions, because if you don't, it invalidates it. So we ask that you do that. We will have our annual business meeting on Sunday, December 3rd at 4 p.m. So that's where the vote will take place. And, uh, of course, when you nominate somebody, realize it doesn't mean they're going to get on the ballot. They have to go through a few other things, but they're people we would consider. Um, I want to show you right now a clip from Operation Christmas Child. And um, this is the mission that we're focusing in on this month. When that shoebox is open, they're overjoyed. You can see them shouting, jumping. Oh, look at how much they are excited. This is the first time those children are receiving the shoeboxes. They are so happy. You can hear the laughter. You can hear the cheer. That excitement, it goes and goes and goes. Right now, we're in Ukraine, and today we've given out the 200 millionth shoebox to a little girl here, so it's a lot of fun. It's a privilege for us to be able to come and to help the people as much as we can. Every box is important, because every box is an opportunity to tell a child about God's love, about His Son, Jesus Christ. There's so much joy that one gift box can give. They really experience the love of Jesus. Operation Christmas Show, we celebrate something as simple as the shoebox because God uses it to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We got a full box on this This is such an amazing time. We're so happy to be here. This shoebox gift will impact a child's life all year round. We never dreamed we'd have an army of men and women who would come to make this program happen. This is what it's all about telling others about Jesus. These shoeboxes go into 120 different countries where pastors and missionaries are going to use them to bring the gospel to kids. So you may think it's just a simple gift at Christmas time, but it's the gift of the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ. 
When that shoebox leaves that distribution center and it goes around the world, that's not just one person. That's the body of Christ joined together, delivering the good news of the gospel. They go by plane, they go by ship, they go by riverboat, they go by camels, they go by motorbikes. And these boxes go to some of the most remote areas of the world. And every box counts. After receiving shoeboxes, children are invited to participate in the Greatest Journey Discipleship Program. These children have just completed 12 lessons in the Greatest Journey. I believe that discipleship is the key and they are now followers of Christ. They will tell their friends about Jesus. My name is Gladys and I am nine years old. My friend Kemi told me I needed to go with her to church. I wanted to teach her about the Word of God. And when she came to my church, she received a gift box. For a long time, I asked my mom for a blanket. When I opened my shoebox, I found a blanket in it. When I came home, I showed it to my mom, and she said it was great. I told her about Jesus. Now me, my mom, my grandma, and Kemi go to church together. I am certain of one thing. God is my savior. Every box counts. Every box touches a child. It's like a snowflake. There's not one shoebox that is the same. And we are reaching millions of children with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you get the heart of the child, you will reach the heart of the parents, you will reach the heart of the family, and then you will touch the community. We are seeing churches being planted, and more and more churches are being built. We will do whatever it takes to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. That gift box is the beginning into their hearts. Isn't it incredible how these gifts touch the lives of these children? The joy, the smiles, it changes lives. Every year we see tens of thousands of children discipled. And we couldn't do this without you, so thank you for packing the boxes. Thank you for praying for these children around the world. God bless you, and keep packing those boxes. It's a great ministry, and we're glad that we can be a part of that. On the... Uh, Back of our bulletin, we have prayer requests and prayer concerns. We want to thank uh, Ricardo. For many years, he run the uh, men's pancake breakfast, and he is going to hand that baton over to someone. So to uh, Francisco is going to take care of that now. Appreciate all the things that he's done. Also, you probably noticed that oh, our projector looks a little better than it used to. Um, it's actually not a projector. We, we got this done this last week. I want to thank, I can thank a lot of people. I want to thank Andrew Schofield because he headed this thing up and was the point person and made sure it all worked because, it, I, I don't know, there's 120, what, 150 screens up there? And so have fun with that. But anyway. And we're still tweaking it, so it'll get better. And we're going to probably have, our, we used to do a Super Bowl party uh, gathering here to watch a game, but... We're probably going to do that again since we can actually see it. And uh, we'll be doing Family Night at the Movies again starting next year. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to move to this. Make sure you take note of the, our prayer concerns. We've got a lot of people with health issues. We have troops who are deployed who thankfully are going to get paid. Uh, we have our shut-ins that we've been praying for. Uh, Operation Christmas Child is the outreach, uh, is the, uh, is the, uh, the outreach that we've been focusing on this month. 
and CareNet is our mission, and we're praying for the work that they do as they help save children. So at this time, let's stand together. I'll have a closing prayer, and our band will lead us out with a song. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for the opportunity we have to be here today, and we thank you for the blessings we have in you. Lord, we thank you for the work of Operation Christmas Child and the impact it can have all around the world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.